Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is ESPN's Chris Fowler. You know him. You love him. He helped build College Game Day from absolutely nothing. He's now the play-by-play voice on the biggest game every week on ABC in prime time. He's called some huge games. He calls the national championship game. He calls the playoffs. He called second and 26 when Tua Tungavailoa hit Devontae Smith. Doesn't get much bigger than that. And we're going to find out. I wasn't exactly feeling his best that day. We'll talk to Chris about calling games of that magnitude, about the early days of college game day, and about the topic that everybody wants to know about. Is there going to be college football on time this year? Will it be delayed? Will it be in the spring? What's going to happen? He's talked to some people, and he has a few ideas as well. Here's Chris Fowler. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show, and we are just moving through the cast of The Waterboy until we get to Adam Sandler. A few days ago, you heard James Bates, my former Florida teammate who got dropkicked by Bobby Boucher, and now we get another guy who a few years ago got 28 cents of mailbox money because they broadcast The Waterboy in Sweden. That's right, (laughs) ESPN's Chris Fowler. Hi, Chris. Hey, Andy. Yeah, no, I, I I wish I got to work with Bobby Boucher in a scene because uh, that was the one missing experience for the Waterboy day on the set. But mailbox money is real. When you realize, I've gotten more than 28 cents, by the way. When you realize that your little two scenes generate cash for years, you wonder what Adam Sandler is pulling down from it. But um, no, nah, it was just a fun experience. Well, that's what. So the last time I saw you on my television was not long ago because I saw you in the last dance. And. I started thinking about this because obviously, you know, you were you were on SportsCenter when I was in high school, in college, and then you moved on to college game day. And and we've thought about you as, the, you know, the consummate studio host and, and the, the ringmaster of these shows. But I'm thinking in, in 10 years, there's going to be a generation of college football fans who regard you as a play-by-play guy. And I that is a really hard bridge to jump and do you do you think about that that the, the when you know 10 20 years you, you're going to be looked at like Keith Jackson was instead of the guy who was basically the founder of game day I don't know about that thank you I mean I, he, he, there's only one Keith and for me there'll only be one person in his category when it comes to college football booth work but I think that you, you have the job that Keith had at one point and Brent had at one point and others that I really admire down through the years have had. And I embrace that responsibility. It's quite flattering. It's inspiring. I don't think you try to be anybody else. Um, I would never try to imitate Keith's style. And I think that the landscape is so different now, Andy, as you know, there's so much more on television than there was back in those days. There is no voice of college football. There just is no singular voice there shouldn't be. There can't be. There's too much content. There's too much competition. And I don't try to be. I just try to be, you know, do the best job I can with the games that I do. And we're very lucky we get to do a lot of the big games. But um, now, you know, game day was really when people say or people hear me say that it's a happy accident. I don't want to get the wrong idea. 
I, I will never get another chance in my career to build something brick by brick from very, very modest beginnings into something that had a, a place on the landscape of college football. That's unique. But it wasn't what I wanted to do when I got into the business. That was always calling games and documenting live sports. So I, I sort of have settled back to what I've always wanted to do since I'm 10 years old. And I get to do it in my two favorite sports, um, tennis being a co-favorite sport for me. And we have the championship events um, whenever they're played again in that sport as well. So that's why you know I sort of call this a dream gig. You get to call championship events in your two favorite sports to me can't be better and then do special stuff on the side when it, when the opportunities arise. Well, uh, you were pretty young when you got the game day gig. I mean, you went from, uh, because nobody wanted well, it. Well, Exactly. People think it, it was this, you know, always this behemoth. It was not coveted. You were, you were coming off scholastic was, sports America. Yeah. I was 23 years old. And, and yeah, you know, when I got hired at the company, I was like 27, I think, when I when I started Game Day, and I'm like, people, are like, well, yeah, but nobody wanted Game Day. I mean, Game Day was a half hour show, leading into lightly watched games at noon Eastern. It was on life support. Didn't make a dime. Uh, didn't cost much because it was in the studio at the time. But they were considering dumping it just for lack of interest. And when I took over in 1990, there certainly was no grand design. Let's build something great here. It was just Hey, I like college football. This is the opportunity for me. Um, I was doing some some sidelines at the primetime game a couple of years before that, doing reports for the show. But hosting the show was an opportunity where I just, you know, let's give this a shot. And, you know, it, it was fun, but it certainly didn't feel like the beginning of something huge in 1990 and until we took it on the road and figured out, hmm, what was this that? Is, this is now now we got something. What here. was that conversation like to get yourselves to South Bend? It was the '93 Florida State Notre Dame game. And I, I was actually watching some of this episode of Game Day the other day. You, you guys, oh, boy, are, that's a cringe fest. You guys are on the set in the Joyce Center. They put you in the basketball oh, arena, and there's a bunch of fans. No roped we, <laughs> we had no clue. We, we didn't know how to stage it. We didn't know how to mic it. Or there was little clip-on lavalier mics that, that don't do the job when you're surrounded by people, but. Um, no, the conversation was that we've been pushing for a while because we had taken the show on the road in the postseason to bowl games, and we knew it was it was viable. But they didn't feel like spending the massive sum of I think it was fifty thousand dollars. I was told to get the show on the road. That, that's like the catering budget <laughs> for the say. show now. But 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 like back then, is it? Like, Wait a minute, we're not making any money, so now we're going to spend fifty grand to get it on the road. And that one versus two game in November, North versus South. Bowden versus Holtz had had every ingredient you could possibly want. It's still one of the biggest regular season games I've ever been a part of. And that was the impetus. And even though the show was crude and raw from a technical standpoint, it was fun. And we knew we had something there. You could tell that college football was sort of uniquely set up to work for this kind of an on-site show. And 94, we've had it five or six times to 95, same thing, and then we began to get the show on the road every week in the late 90s. And then Katy Perry showed up. I, I was I was in Oxford for that weekend, which I, I think I still think that is the best broadcast of game day in its history because it was the it's most favorite, fun you had. It's my favorite show. It's my favorite show I've ever, I ever did on game day, for sure, in terms of the fun factor. I was proud of other shows we did that were a little weightier, but we had waited forever to do The Grove. And I, I don't think The Grove had ever been done right from a TV standpoint, because it's hard to, to get a hold on on everything that's going on there and make it make it work visually. 
because it's happening underneath tents. So you, you got to get down in there, roll up your sleeves, get with the people. And a, an enormous amount of work went into trying to capture that from everybody involved. And it was, it was a, a very proud moment. And then, you know, yeah, as you said, Katy Perry showed up and she was the wildest guest picker we've ever had. And it was just one of those days. I couldn't stay and watch the game because Kirk and I had to jet out to call another game. And that was the only thing that didn't make it a perfect day is I would have loved to have been on the sidelines for that game. And then out in Oxford on that night, that would have been a hell of a lot of fun. Well, my night in Oxford ended near the Grove as I watched uh, a couple of college students try to find a hacksaw so they could saw a piece of the goalpost off. So, and, and they were telling Katy Perry stories as they did this. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, she, went, she went like diving off the bar, right? She, she was out in, out in the town that night. That was, that was, she became a legend forever down there. Oh yeah. And, and the story the one guy tells is, as he's, as he's trying to figure out how to get the goalposts apart is I saw her, uh, her, her SUV rolled up and the window rolled down and she just said, hottie toddy. And then the window rolled back up. <laughs> just, it, 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 the number of people who will claim that they were there that weekend in 2014, it's going to be five to 10 million by the time we get 30 years out from it. Katie Perry, the genius of that was that she really wasn't that big a college football fan. It didn't know much about Ole Miss. Her, her connection to the school was her manager's uh, connection to it. So that, that got her there, but she did her homework. Just It was just the right amount of dropping a few little college football nuggets, but but just having a blast with it. And she remains the only one probably who will ever take the headgear off of Corso. No one else has ever dared to rip off. In that case, it was the big owl head. She ripped it off and threw it away. And you can see the expression on his face as he's wearing his Colonel Sanders suit and bow tie. It's one of the priceless moments in the history of the show that she just beheaded Corso. <laughs> it, was, it was tremendous. It, it, but, and then, you know, you've that that was the year that you were doing both, right? Where where you you right. did the yeah. you did college game day, and then you and Kirk would get in the jet and go. Now, I don't think people understand what goes into anchoring a three hour show. How much did you sleep that fall when you're going back and forth? Because one, you've got to be prepared for that game broadcast because everyone will notice any mistake you make. But two, you've got. The whole show, the weight of the show, where you you have to be prepared for anything that may come up during that three hours. How'd you do them both? It was a struggle. I, the answer to your question, I didn't sleep much. It's probably four hours a night, most Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. But, you know, it was. I wanted to take the challenge on. I knew it was only going to be a one-year thing. People didn't really understand that at the time. Nobody knew that. But it was going to be just one year of overlap kind of to see how it went. I wanted to do 25 years of game day, a nice round number to finish off. Obviously, I was really excited to get in the booth. But you're right. I think when you do two really challenging things, especially one thing that's I, – I had called games on Thursday for years, but that's not the same thing as stepping into ABC primetime and, and pointing toward the playoff and the championship game with Kirk. I mean, that was a whole other animal. So sort of – that enterprise in year one combined with what I knew was going to be my last year of game day and wanted, wanting to finish it out in proper fashion was the most challenging year I've had. And, and I think that uh, I, I saw how tough it was to do. Kirk continues to do it. I, I admire the energy that he has. It's incredible. No one needs to know or care, but trust me, it's super challenging. The host role is very different than being an analyst on that show. 
And that you mentioned the heavy lifting, just trying to be responsible for not missing something. In large part, the editorial content in that show is driven by the host. It continues to be by Reese, and that that's just the way it goes and should be. So yeah, it was it was a really hectic year, two thousand fourteen. Fun, but hectic. And, and so you go from a, a time where you you know, an environment where you're in a studio show, you, what you say has time to breathe to the booth where everything must be compact. Everything has to mean something. You can't trample over the play. And, and you, you mentioned it and I'm curious about this, the vibe of, of that Saturday night game versus what you did earlier in your career in Thursday night. Cause I, I loved those Thursday night broadcasts. It felt like we were in the booth <laughs> with you guys it, it was just loose and fun but it's different when it's houston ucf on a thursday night versus <laughs> ohio state and somebody on a saturday night yeah or or, or colorado state at hughes stadium against air force or yes, Wyoming or something. exactly we, we we did our time in the mountain west and the, you know, I, I think that uh you don't you don't necessarily walk into the booth thinking it's going to be different it's just that the chemistry of the guys in there and, and Aaron Anders and the sidelines. It was so much fun on Thursday. And it wasn't the same high-pressure thing as, as it is on ABC, where you're answering to affiliates. There's much more scrutiny on the game. So working with Craig James and Doug Flutie and Jesse Palmer and Aaron in those Thursday games, I actually did some Thursdays with Kirk and, and Lee Corso back in the early days, uh, was, was a blast, but it wasn't as weighty as, as Saturday night. Now, I did have to do Thursday and then go do game day, which – was incredibly challenging because it involved flushing out completely. There was no overlap in preparation, if you know what I mean. I mean, when I did game day on Saturday night, there was overlap because we're going to be talking a lot about that primetime game in the morning. So a lot of it overlapped. There was no overlap when you do Thursday and game day. You literally were starting, not, not from scratch, but I really couldn't focus on game day that much until Friday. And that wasn't nearly enough time to do it well. So I had to learn how to manage my time better, how to be more efficient. And, uh, and you, know, you don't want to say cut corners, but you learn how to, where to focus your energy and where it's wasted. So let, let's talk about the role now, because I, you have the biggest games. You call the national championship game. You call playoff games. You call the, the best game every week. And there's pressure in that because you will influence the way the majority of the people who saw it remember that game being played. And so I want to ask about the probably the wildest sequence that you've had to call in the biggest moment because I'm fascinated by the mechanics of it. So Georgia-Alabama, national championship game. Rodrigo Blankenship has just made a field goal from the parking lot to put Georgia up by three. Alabama gets the ball for its possession in overtime. First and 10, Tua vailoa tries to create the worst possible play in the history of football. Uh, should have gone down about three different times, eventually loses 16 yards, and it's second and 26. How do you handle, because obviously you have no idea that the game-winning pass is coming, but what is going through your mind between him going down and the ball in the air to Devontae Smith? First, I'll take you back. I've never felt worse in the booth during a game. I, I don't know what the fever was, but it was over 100. Oh, my gosh. This, had, this is I your Michael flu. Jordan flu game? Yeah, it kind of was. But I, I wish I'd played as well as Jordan did with the flu. I, I, I think that, you know, in a way, it's weird because that is about as good a finish 
finishes you could ever hope to get as a broadcaster, right? A championship is decided on one play and it looks like, you know, disaster one moment, triumph the next. You don't get a better script than that, but it's one game that I don't have a real crystal clear memory of it play by play because I think I was so, I was so out of it. I, I, I was just, you know, I wanted like a full body shut down, like full body aches as soon as the game ended. And I, it, it was freezing in Atlanta that week. I caught something. It only lasted a few days, but it was pretty rough that day. Nobody cares. You got to do the job. You got to show up and do it. But there's whole passage to that game. I don't remember well. Like I don't, That's unusual for me. I, if I call something that important where it's a piece of the sports history, you know, it stays in your head, but not that game just because I wasn't right. So, so he takes a 16-yard loss on first down, which everybody knows is the one thing you cannot do in overtime. You cannot take a sack. When your kicking game is a little shaky anyway, you cannot go 16 yards behind the sticks on the first down. I mean, your odds of winning the game on a touchdown are, are tiny at that point. So now you're thinking, I didn't have much time to react because obviously Kirk is analyzing the hell out of this play. What Tua did wrong, here comes the pass rush. And and you're not thinking, as you said, the game is going to be won on the next play. So we went right down to the snap with the replays of that sack. And I recall getting it. He was almost, he was in drop back mode when I started to describe it. And, and all that came to mind was Tunga Bailoa trying to make up for it was what I said. And by that point, the ball was in the air. Smith was running underneath it and, and all hell broke loose. And, um, and you just, you do what you do. You give a kind of a minimalist call and lay out. But I, I just talked to Saban the other day, you know, asking about championship memories that for him stands well above every other championship moment he ever experienced because he was about to rip the quarterback's head off for a mistake that he had made. And then lo and behold, Tua wins the game. And it was funny talking about their exchange afterward. He's talked about that before, but it's sort of like he was going to rip him a new one. And then what can you do but hug his neck before he wins the game? Well, we, we asked Tua about that a couple of weeks ago. We had him on and he was explaining that, you know, he, he told, he was trying to joke around after the game. He said, you know, I was just, I was just trying to make it more exciting give myself more room to throw and save. And he goes, that's not funny. And he was no, no, he, serious. You found no humor in that. I promise you. He, no, he was going to, and then that, that for Nick matters. Yes, you won the championship, but that was such a terrible mistake to make in the play before that you know that he's not going to let that go. So. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc all help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors and no artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code STAPLES at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code STAPLES for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code STAPLES. You, got, you talk to these coaches a lot. I, if you follow Chris on Instagram, 
you'll see, Chris, you're posting videos and, and you've talked to people about this coming season. I, I thought it was very interesting one you, you posted earlier this month about you know talking to some coaches and about what what they think is going to happen because I, I'm having similar conversations with coaches and you know how coaches are. They want to address every potential eventuality because they're very detail-oriented <laughs> people. And in a situation like this, you just can't. No. No, you have no choice but to prepare for the first scenario. So I understand why they're pointing toward a start in a normal time slot. You have no choice but to do that. You have to get your players ready in, in the event that we're going to start up in late August. But they're not the deciders and they're not the big picture thinkers, as you said. So it's it's more useful, actually, for me to talk to conference commissioners or athletic directors, the people that are taking a more meta look at this. But the coaches are also trying to figure out, Andy, how do I take advantage of this? How do I gain a strategic edge in my competition amidst all this turmoil? And the smart ones are, are finding ways to do that. I mean, Saban is in that group. I, I talked to Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley, other guys who are, I think, outside the box thinkers, very bright minds who happen to use their intellect in college football, but could be successful anywhere. And they're plotting and planning and trying to adapt and be flexible all the things they tell their players they have to do. Now they have to do as much as they hate doing that. Cause they like, as you said, they like order and control. There is no order and control in this. So it's interesting to hear how they're trying to cope with all this, this uncertainty. Yeah, it is. And it is uncertain. And I, I'm curious as to what you think could ultimately happen because I've talked to the commissioners and, and they don't know what's going on yet. It feels as if in the last few weeks there's been a little more optimism about the idea of playing a season in the fall, but I, I still have talked to some people who would rather push it and, and play later because they'd like to have fans in the stands, and that may be a financial thing. That may be a atmosphere, normalcy thing. But where do you think this winds up? I think there is a little bit more clarity, but not much more than there was a couple months ago. I, I began talking to people in March and they all said mid to late May. That's when we'll have clarity. And that's when we need to have clarity if we're going to go forward with the idea of starting the season on time. You have to begin to plot and plan by the end of this month. So I think there's been a, a bigger push to start on time in some parts of the country. The three scenarios I, I talked about with them, one, normal season starts on time. Two, delayed start, shortened season, different looking postseason, perhaps limiting it to just conference games, and then finishing up in that window in January before the NFL playoffs. Three, beginning after the NFL finishes with the Super Bowl, assuming the NFL is going to play with or without fans in the fall. I think there's much more pressure for them to play than there is college football in, in the normal time slot. And they don't need fan ticket revenue nearly as much as college does. As you know, the business model is completely flipped. So scenario three, college football beginning in maybe late Feb, March, and then wrapping up sometime in May, um, seems like a radical, impossible to pull off scenario until you view it as a lesser of evils. And if you view it that way as the only way to perhaps logically salvage those TV revenues within the school year, then it begins to take shape. I think there's a lot of ADs and commissioners that see that as the more prudent, more likely move than trying to rush to the first tee in late August with so many questions unanswered. I mean, 
obviously I'd love to play it in the traditional fall season. I mean, if it's safe, if it's prudent, if it makes sense, I'll be there in the booth doing it and the company will be happy to televise those games. But how are we going to get people on the same page in this big sprawling country, which I think is becoming increasingly divided on this issue by late August? And you tell me how that works. I mean, I'm like you, I'm talking to people, then I'll hear an announcement like the the regent of Minnesota says there's no way that school is going to be, or not no way, but it's they're leaning strongly toward online classes in the fall, as are a lot of campuses. Okay, how does that work having a football season when your students aren't on campus? I mean, to me, that doesn't work. So you, you start to get very different responses from people in the Pac-12 or perhaps the Big Ten than you get from the SEC, for example. I think the hope is that there will be clarity moving forward that, that a month from now we'll know more than than we did last month but but do you know enough though I, that I, I don't know asking can't you keep asking experts until you find one that's going to tell you what you want to hear absolutely and and at a certain point you just have to make a decision and that's that's what i talked to several commissioners about last week and, and greg sankey basically said what you try to do is you gather as much information as you can and wait as long as you can before you make the decision so i think if you're going to play as scheduled, because all the, the people who agree or, or the consensus seems to be that you need six weeks to get ready. So you've got to have everybody back by mid-July. So you'd have to make that decision by early July. So we're talking about less than two months from now. And So did he, did he give you the indication that they could wait that long to make a decision? Because I know the commissioners have been speaking regularly. The, every day. And I've been told, not, not, not by Sankey, but, but I've been told by others, This again, this goes back a little while, that that was way too late to make a decision. They're going to have, have to have clarity by late May or at least some really good idea by the 1st of June. If they're saying they can wait, you're presuming they're going ahead with the season. You're going to go ahead and plan as though there is a right. season. And that's what they've told everybody to do is plan as if there's going to be one. And then that way, if they have to say, no, we're not going to do it until October or we're not going to do it till January, they can make adjustments on the fly without – any issues, but you can't get caught flat-footed. So that's why everybody, and, and I think that may be the reason why it feels like there's more optimism about playing on time because everybody is now ramping up to potentially do that. But the thing is, if the, the wrong piece of data comes in, then it may get the brakes put on. And I'll be curious to see how the public reacts if that's what happens. Yeah, again, I think we're not in the same place. It's now become, unfortunately incredibly to me, a political decision whether or not to wear a mask out in public or to a store. And I thought we, as a country, not to get off on the the bigger issue for too long, but as a country, we're pretty together for a while, but then the inevitable divisiveness comes back into play. And I think we're kind of pulling apart. There's some, there's some stretching going on between two different groups and it's, it's, it's happening pretty quickly here. So um, there's parts of the country where people are wearing masks and they're being aggressively heckled for doing that. It's, and other it's, parts it's of the been country weird. where everybody's wearing one. It's been weird for me because I'm I'm not one of those people who looks at politics like they look at sports. I, I don't watch you know, cable news all day and I don't look at it as, a, as an us versus them or, or anything like that. And so to see this get politicized is kind of infuriating for me because it's just – it's a disease. We have to deal yeah. with it. We have to do what doctors say. And it's it sucks because, obviously, the economy is shut down. There are factors. There are pressures that are independent of the disease itself. But 
to politicize something like this, which nobody could have planned for, expected, it just seems counterproductive to me. I mean, people on both sides of the aisle want to get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's just how, how do you do it safely? But let, let's just fast forward. Let's just say that there's increasing momentum to begin the season on time and to have stadiums filling up beginning August 29th, you know, week zero, uh, whether it's in Dublin or there's about a dozen other games, as you know, right. that, that weekend. And then, then you get, you get into full swing the following weekend. So what is it going to feel like if they say, Hey, buy your tickets now or, or use the tickets you've already bought and let's show up to Jordan Hare, to Autzen stadium, to the horseshoe, to happy Valley, to Daryl K Royal stadium. And we're going to have a game. I mean, does anybody really know whether the seats are going to be filled, whether how many people are going to be wearing masks, how many people are going to not care about that and just roll the dice or how many people are just not going to show up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's now I think if we're looking at this logically, if they start the season on time, there is very little chance that there are fans in the stands. That's just, that just seems logical to me. And it seems more, which is why I thought that a spring season made more sense. I don't, I don't, I've been told you, you, you know more perhaps about the business side of the sport than I do, but I've just been told by enough smart people that this doesn't work to play without fans. It's a lot of you money. Can't, you, and, and yeah, I, you're giving back the, the majority of your revenues. So, it's it, it's you know, not I, the majority I'm, in the Power Five. You know, it's 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 about twenty to thirty five percent of a, of a Power Five school well, revenue. But but that's a lot of money. I think that varies widely. I think that varies wildly from Power from Power Five school. Yeah. The bigger the stadium you have. The more expensive your tickets, the more that your donations are tied right. to tickets. That's and suites, the other piece of it. The bigger piece of the pie. There's plenty of schools that make over fifty percent uh, of their revenue from that piece. If you're going to count donations, other things that are tied to tickets, um, the TV chunk is substantial. If you don't sell a lot of tickets, obviously, the fewer fans you have, the bigger percentage you get from TV. But there's plenty of schools that would not find it viable to play in an empty stadium to go through what you have to go through. Well, that, that to put the players at, at risk. Cause right. let's be honest, they're going to be at risk. I don't care what you right. do. Take the temperature every day, quarantine the dorm. You're going to, you're putting people and students at risk. And you're, you're in many cases drawing a line between football players and quote unquote, regular students. And you're, you're treating them like, like employees of the school. In effect, if you're, if you're going to have separate rules for them, and you're doing all that for a vastly diminished revenue piece. I don't know. I mean, that, that's what they're trying to wrestle with. Yeah, they are. And I, I was surprised. I have been surprised over the last few weeks at how many people seem gung-ho on the idea of playing now. Because I would assume that there are a lot of ADs that would rather say, let's do this in January. Because I'll feel more comfortable with the idea of I'm going to be able to sell some tickets. But I've been shocked at how few people. I've talked to a few people who do feel that way. But I've been shocked at how few. So I, I'm just I, I'm I will be as surprised as anybody about whatever happens, Chris. I, I honestly because this is this is such a great unknown that, that we're dealing with right now. And it, it, it's all a lesser of evils. It's just how you want to frame it. I mean, we don't we don't know if there's a spike in 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 late fall, early winter, and you had planned to have a spring season. Now would that be in jeopardy? Right. Exactly. We, there just are way way too many unanswered questions. I think people are dying to get back to football would love to start in, in August, September. I mean, I would too, but only if it makes sense, man. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know about empty stadiums. I just, I don't, I don't know if, if enough schools are going to say that makes sense. Um, 
In the NFL, they'll do it. Obviously, European soccer is, is going full steam with that because the TV piece is so massive. And they just feel that for national morale, they have to have the Premier League back and playing. So, and I think that, that that's the way the NFL is viewed here. So that politically, there's massive pressure right. you know, from Washington to play this season, wh- whatever they have to do. Yes, okay? and on time. Um, and that on time, We yeah, need that exactly. TV show. Now, here's, yep. here's my question. If college football does get moved to the spring – how do you get back and forth from Sydney? <laughs> uh, hopefully it would start after the Australian Open. I, I'd, I'd be able to safely get back. And uh, that's at least of my concerns. I just, look, I, if I wasn't tied to this sport for my living, I'd still want it, I'd still want it as badly. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, look, I mean, that's, that's the thing. If, if we start talking about playing a season in the spring, a lot of coaches I've talked to, and you, as you know, very few want to be on the record about this. Oh, yeah. Because enough coaches have stepped, put their foot in their mouth and stepped in whatever and made dumb statements. And so they're, they don't want to sound tone deaf. So these guys are all, are all talking off the record. But they're worried about the prospects sitting out a spring season. The NFL would have to be fully on board with this. If you're listening to this and you're wondering, how does that work? Combine goes away. Draft gets pushed back. And the, the player evaluation piece is totally different, obviously. You could, you could get scouted in person and you're by the head coach of an NFL team if you play in the spring. So it's very different. But would guys sit out because their agents or agents-to-be or advisors would tell them, hey, this is too close to the draft, the mini camp. You don't want to jeopardize your rookie season by playing into April or May. A lot of coaches feel like a lot of top prospects would sit it out. Oh, yeah. And that's what they're worried about. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, there's no reason to play in that case. Now, if you're not a first-round pick, there's also a good chance you blow up on a Thursday night with with America watching and and the entirety of the football world watching you, and you just went up a round. So there's there's a – Plus but I don't know that every first-round guy would sit out. I, I don't know that what is in Trevor Lawrence's heart. I mean, True. The Clemson culture is pretty, is pretty powerful. Um, unfinished business may, may be in his head. So I'm not, I think it could be contagious. I think if a lot of top players decided to opt out the way that it happens in bowl games, a lot of others might do it. Um, and maybe you would get dozens and dozens of top guys because there's about 150 guys who think they're first-rounders, right? So, um, you know, but who knows? I mean, again, that's just one of those unknowable things. Well, Chris, it, it we're going to find out. We're, we're all going to find out together. And I don't care when it is. I can't wait to hear you call your next game. So thank you so much for the time. No, it was my pleasure. I had a great time. We could, we could do this for hours. <laughs> we will do this for hours <laughs> next time. And, and, and we're going to get Sandler on, and we'll have the entire cast of the Waterboy. It's going to be amazing. So mailbox money questions forever. Kathy Bates, too. It'd be awesome, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> we can't go without Kathy Bates. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. My pleasure, Andy. That's it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you're not subscribing to The Athletic already, what are you waiting for? Theathletic.com slash Andy Staples gets you 40% off your first year. So go ahead and subscribe, and you can read the best college football coverage in the universe. I feel comfortable saying that because we know it's the best in America, and college football is a fairly uniquely American thing, so we know it's the best on Earth probably the best in the solar system, probably the best in the galaxy, and probably the best in the universe. So, look, theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S for 40% off your first year. We will talk to you on Friday.